As we're approaching Thanksgiving, I want to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, the beginning of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. And as we're turning our attention there, I would like to acknowledge that my wife's parents are in the house today, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Munye and Marcelino Rosari. Oma Abuji. Omoni Abuji. Yes, Omoni. <laughs> and today is my father-in-law's birthday. And uh, he's 45 years old today. <laughs> All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes to the Corinthian letter, introducing this most traumatic letter. Probably one of the most traumatic and confrontational letters written in the New Testament. A letter in which he's going to deal with more stuff and more garbage than perhaps any other letter in the New Testament. But he begins the letter by saying this, I thank my God always concerning you. I thank my God always concerning you. Paul says, I'm praying for you all the time, but whenever I pray for you, the first thing that comes to my mouth, the first thing that comes to my heart is thanksgiving. I'm constantly thanking my God for you. And if you've never read the book of 1 Corinthians before, this might not surprise you, but if you have read the letter of 1 Corinthians, if you actually stop and look at this verse, it's actually quite surprising. I thank my God always concerning you? If I were Paul, I might write, occasionally I find some slight reason to give thanks in regard to you, but most of the time you are a thorn in my flesh. It might be argued that the Corinthian church was the thorn in his flesh that he prayed about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. And so Paul is writing a letter to a church that he really doesn't have much good to say about. Mostly, he's doing a whole lot of rebuking. And actually, he, t- it doesn't, he spends nine verses with pleasantries. And from verse 10 of chapter 1 on, he's issuing rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. Correction after correction after correction. But yet, he begins the letter by saying, I thank my God always concerning you. And when I read that, it seems to be a confrontation. Now, doesn't, doesn't it seem to be a contradiction? Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. But let me tell you what you need to get right because you guys are completely messed up as a church. That's what the rest of the letter says. I mean, Paul definitely isn't thanking God for the behavior of the Corinthians. You just read a little bit further in the letter and you find that there's all kinds of contentions and conflicts going on at the church of Corinth. So much contention and conflict that even members of the church are suing each other. In public courts. And Paul is saying, one believer goes to court against another believer. Why don't you just take the most ignorant and immature believer in your church and make him the judge. And let him settle it rather than go to court in front of unbelievers to solve problems in the church. What does that say about Christ? What does that say about what the salvation and what you're supposed to represent? I mean, for crying out loud, can't you get it together? There was all kinds of contentions in the church. Not only contention, there was divisions In the church, there were all these cliques, cliques, folks clicking everywhere. This group gathered together. They were clicking ethnically, perhaps. Maybe there was maybe there was uh, uh, generational cliques going. The older folks sitting over here and the younger folks sitting over here. Older folks going to first service and younger folks going to second service. I don't know. 
Maybe the maybe the Koreans had a little click, and the and the black folks had a little click, and the white folks had a little click, and there's a little Hispanic click going on. Maybe maybe that's what what it was. But actually, the divisions that Paul talks about were individuals that that tried to spiritualize their divisions. They said, "I am of Paul," because Paul is the great apostle. And somebody said, "No, no, no, I am of Apollos." See, Paul sounds like a big deal in his letters, but when you hear him speak, he's this little piddly guy. His, his speech is not very weighty, but Apollos is the great orator. So we follow Apollos. And somebody else says, oh yeah, well we follow Peter. He's the only apostle who ever walked on water. And somebody else said, well I don't know about y'all, but we follow Christ. I am a Christ. We're the Christ clique. Y'all ain't even Christians. Y'all are heck of fake. <laughs> And so Paul says, there's all kinds of divisions among you. There's all kinds of, not only divisions, but there was favoritism. When they would get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they didn't do it the way we did. You know, when we have communion, we have a little cracker and a little vial of juice, a little thimble full of juice. You know, they would have a feast. But on the day of their feasts, they would set up these beautiful ornate tables for the rich people in the church. And they would sit in throne-like seats, throne-like seats, drinking from golden goblets in fine china, while the poor people would be at the back of the room on the floor with styrofoam cups and paper plates. And some of the poor people would be starving in the back, while the rich people would be sitting at their tables, you know, with big old turkey legs in their hands and, you know, and just eating these, these lavish meals. And Paul was going, are you serious? You're calling that the Lord's Supper? When you're showing favoritism of, of one another? Not only that, there was sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. And Paul said there was such sexual immorality in that church, such as had not even been named out, not even the, the pagans weren't even doing what they were doing. He said, there's a man in your church that's sleeping with his father's wife. He's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And you guys are okay with this. You guys are boasting about it. You guys should be on your faces mourning about this. That such a thing could be done in the house of the Lord. But you're mourning about, you're just boasting about this. I mean, for crying out loud, what is he giving thanks for? He says, I thank God for you always. Shouldn't he want to stop in the middle of the letter and say, based on everything I said, let me revise my opening statement. I give thanks for you guys every once in a while, but there ain't a whole lot to thank God about. So at least not in the realm of their behavior, but maybe he's thanking God for their knowledge. Well, probably not. Because once you get to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, you see that they didn't have any knowledge. They were the most ignorant church that you ever met. I mean, if you, if you met a Corinthian, you met an ignorant believer. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, I would like to give you solid food, but I can't because you're too immature. Solid food is for the mature. I still got to give you milk. Why? Because you guys have been in this thing long enough to be instructors, but yet you still need someone to instruct you. So I still have to feed you this little spiritual milk, this little baby stuff. All I can give you is this little baby stuff. And I want you to grow up. They didn't have any knowledge. They were immature and definitely not their orderliness. In Colossians 2.5, Paul writes to the Colossian church, he says, Though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in the spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are. But he can't say that to the Corinthians. He says of the, the brother that was sinning sexually, he said, Though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in the spirit, and I've already judged that one. His presence with them in the spirit was one of judgment and not of delight. Matter of fact, there was all kinds of disorder. There was spiritual exhibitionism in the Corinthian church. People would stand up. They had to show the whole church that they had to get their tongues. Hey, everybody, check this out. Shop to my bow tie. You know, 
or, they, or somebody would have to, you had to show the church you had to give to prophecy. Guess what? Look what I can do. Look what I can do. All this spiritual exhibitionism. And Paul had to write to bring order to a church that was largely out of order. The state of things in Corinth was definitely a thorn in Paul's flesh. So much so that if Chaplain Barry Black were the apostle to the Corinthians, he'd be surely praying a different prayer over the Corinthian church. He might have prayed, Lord, just send a flood to Corinth and drown everybody. But Paul, when he prays for the Corinthians church, he's not praying confrontational prayers. Instead, he's praying, he's giving thanks. He says, I thank my God always concerning you. You see, Paul knows that there's some serious things that he has to deal with in the letter. He knows that he has very little praise to offer the Corinthian church and a whole lot of rebuke into offering them. But yet he is still able to say, I thank God always concerning you. And what I want to know is what was Paul giving thanks for? I mean, there's not a whole lot in the letter that shows what he had to give thanks for. What is Paul giving thanks for? And that opening verse explains it in verse four, chapter one, verse four. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you by Christ Jesus. He says, I might not have anything to thank God for in regards to your behavior. I can't thank him for how much you've learned. I can't thank him for how you behave or how you act or how orderly you are. I can't thank him for your ministry to the poor. I can't thank him for your missions work in the world. I can't thank him for your testimony in the city of Corinth. But one thing I can thank him for is that you are recipients of his grace. I thank God For the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. That is, you may not act right, you may not know anything, and you may be out of order, but you are still recipients of the grace of God. And Paul's perspective was grace-centric. And because Paul's perspective was centered in the grace of God, he was protected from bitterness, from burnout, from frustration, and from disillusionment. Paul understood the grace of God because of his own experience with Jesus Christ. See, we got to understand that when Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, it wasn't at an altar call. Paul did not go to a church, an unbeliever, and hear a stirring gospel message and cry a few tears and come to an altar and say a prayer and then go home and hope it worked. Paul had an encounter, a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And we must remember that when Paul met Christ, he was on the way to kill him some more Christians. I mean, Paul, if anybody understood the grace of God, it was Paul. And for Paul, the grace of God was manifested in the fact that there's no way he should have been saved. Absolutely no way. Paul was able to look at his former life and say, God did not save me because I was a good person. He didn't save me because I had great morality. He didn't save me because I had a strong work ethic. He didn't save me because he saw that I was disillusioned with my prior life. Paul was not disillusioned with his prior life. He was passionate about it. He was moving passionately in in an antichrist direction. And Christ met him on the road to Damascus and saved him for one reason and for one reason only. Because he wanted to. Paul's grace-centric perspective was what allowed him to overcome the memory of his own sins. Because see... Paul held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. And some say that the one who holds the coats is the one who orders the execution. 
Can you imagine after Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and becomes a believer in Jesus Christ that for the rest of his life he's got to deal with the memory of Stephen's face as he was pummeled with stones as he lifted up his hands and said, Lord, receive my spirit. Can you imagine the memories of the faces of the believers that he had drug out of their homes and thrown in prison? The churches he had broken up. I mean, this guy was as antichrist as they came. And matter of fact, the scripture said that he was inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the church of Jesus Christ. If anybody had some sin to deal with, Paul had some sin to deal with. But it was the grace of Jesus Christ that allowed him to overcome the memory of his own sin. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul identifies himself as a C-level sinner. You know what I'm talking about? Where he said, this is a trustworthy saying that Christ died for the ungodly, for sinners of whom I am the chief. Christ died for sinners of whom I am the chief. Paul says, if sin was a corporation, I'd be the CEO. I would be at the top of that. I was chief of sinners. Christ came to die for sinners, for those who are moving in the opposite direction of him. And I am the chief. Paul understood his prior life and understood that it was nothing but the grace of God that pulled him out of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says, I am the least of all the apostles. And I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Then he says this, but... By the grace of God, I am what I am. It is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Not because I'm gifted. I'm an apostle, not because I'm called. I'm an apostle, not because I'm anointed, but because the grace of God gifted me and the grace of God called me and the grace of God anointed me. It is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Paul understood the grace of God to overcome the memory of his own sin. And Paul's grace-centric perspective was what kept him through personal hardship. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and especially in verse 8 and 9, when he talks about this thorn in his flesh, this messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. And he talks about how the struggle that he went through with that infirmity, it was probably some kind of a physical infirmity. It was so intense that he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord that this thorn might be removed. I pleaded with God. Have you ever gone through something where you pleaded with the Lord to take it away. He said three times, I begged God, please take this away from me. Jesus did that on the, on the Mount of Olives when he, he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. There's some stuff that you're going to walk through in life that is so difficult that you're going to plead God to take it away. And he said, God spoke to him each time and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And because God spoke this to him, Paul was able to say, therefore, he He said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Why was he able to see what it say when I'm weak, then I'm strong? Because he had a grace centric perspective. He was able to see the grace of God in everything at all times, in all places, through all situations, in all circumstances, everywhere he looked, he saw grace. And when he prayed for that thorn to be removed, he prayed until he saw the grace of God in it. And when he saw the grace of God in it, he realized it didn't matter if it was removed or if it remained as long as I'm standing in the grace of God, I can make it. 
And so Paul's ministry to the churches was an extension of this grace-centric perspective to the world. You see, regardless of the state of the church to which he writes, regardless of the nature of their problems, regardless of what he has to confront, regardless of how much he has to rebuke them for, regardless of what was going on or what their hardship was, he always begins his letters by saying, grace to you, grace to you. Grace to you. Romans 1, 7, grace to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, grace to you. Galatians 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 2, Philippians 1, 2, Colossians 1, 2, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, grace to you, 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 grace to you. I've got, I've got to establish a foundation of grace before I say anything else. And because Paul had a grace-centric perspective, he always had a reason for thanksgiving. That is because Paul believed that thanksgiving was the natural result of grace, he always had a reason for thanksgiving. See, Paul saw grace as the foundation of thanksgiving. Wherever he saw the grace of God, he knew that thanksgiving was sure to follow. And because he saw the grace of God everywhere, thanksgiving was always followed him wherever he went. He didn't even have to discipline himself to give thanks. He simply had to discipline himself to see the grace of God, to identify and acknowledge the grace of God wherever. And so he's able to look at the Corinthian church and say, I see how messed up you are, but underneath it, I see the grace of God. I can see the grace of God working on your behalf. Listen, I'm telling you, we've been pastoring this church now for 10 years. We're coming up on our 10-year anniversary, and I'm telling you that we have walked through stuff with people in which people were acting up and doing the wrong thing. Even people we counseled, don't go to the right, and they went to the right anyway. People we say, don't go to the left, and they went to the left anyway. We've seen people mess up in all kinds of ways. But what I have marveled at more than anything else is that no matter where people go or what people do, I've seen the grace of God accompany them. I've seen the grace of God go with them. And I say, wow, I wouldn't have gone with you there. But God said, I can't leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. No, I don't want you going this direction. But if you're going to go, my grace is going to go with you. No, I don't want you doing that. But if you're going to do it, my grace is going to go with you. And Paul came to the conclusion that where sin abounds, grace has all the more abounded. Meaning the grace of God goes ahead of you. Grace, what are you doing over there in that pit? Well, I see Alan headed for that pit. And when Alan falls in that pit, I'm going to be there waiting for him. Hi, Alan. I'm Grace. I've been here waiting for you. And so this grace-centric perspective that leads to the overflow of thanksgiving is what Paul pushes in every church. It's the foundation of his process of discipleship. When he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, what he means first and foremost is understand and identify the grace of God on your behalf. And secondly, respond to that grace with a lifestyle of thanksgiving. And that's why he begins his letters by saying grace to you. And then in many of his letters, he moves on and says, now learn how to give thanks. 
He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Listen, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know God's will for your life? People are always talking about if you're single. I want to know God's will for my spouse. If you ain't got a job, I want to know God's will for my vocation. I want to know God's will for my finances. I want to know God's will for homeownership for me. I want to know God's will for my business. I want to know God's will for my kids. Let me tell you the foundation of God's will for your life. Learn to give thanks to God in every circumstance, in every situation. Learn to be a giver of thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5.20 speaks of our always giving thanks to God for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always giving thanks to God for everything. For everything. For everything. You've got to learn how to thank God for your lack. Why? Because it doesn't look like lack to God. It only looks like lack to you. And when you begin to thank God at the place where it appears that you do not have enough, it sets the stage for him to open your eyes and show you that your lack is actually abundance. How many loaves and fish do you have, disciples? Well, we've got five loaves and two fish, and there's 5,000 people. Good, bring me those five loaves and two fish. What are you going to do with them? Watch. He lifts them up to heaven, and he gives thanks. He gives thanks for that which appears not to be enough. When was the last time you had a $1,000 bill, but you had $100 in the bank, and you lifted up that $100 and said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this $100. I give you praise for this $100. I thank you. You, See, we tend to thank God for our abundance and weep over our lack. Oh, God, I need more. But then when we get abundance, thank you, Lord. If you have $1,000 in bills, but you get $5,000, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. But you get $100, Lord, that's not enough. Paul pushed grace. Paul was a, a grace pusher. Because he understood that the ubiquity of grace leads inexorably toward the ubiquity of thanksgiving. He understood that if you begin to live a lifestyle in which you see grace everywhere, you're going to begin to live a lifestyle in which you give thanks everywhere. If you see grace everywhere, you're going to thank God everywhere. And the thing is, some of us are trying to discipline ourselves to give thanks, but we need to be disciplining ourselves to identify grace. Because thanks flows naturally out of the identification of grace. And until you begin to see the grace of God, you can't even begin to give thanks. Not rightly. Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. All this is for your benefit. Listen, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. It is grace that causes thanksgiving. It is grace that causes thanksgiving. Regardless of what you're going through. You have cause to give thanks. Why? Because of the grace of God that you've received in Jesus Christ. John 1.16 says, out of the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Out of the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. If you get a revelation of that verse, it will bring about a wholesale reinterpretation of your life. Because most of us, many of us, are looking back on our lives and we see one curse after another. We look back on our lives and we see one hardship after another. We look back on our lives and we see one disappointment after another. We look back on our lives 
imagine we see one loss after another. But John says, let me reinterpret your life for you from beginning to end. Let me give you a new perspective on the living of your life. Out of the fullness of his grace, you have received one blessing after another. You wake up in the morning and God said, here goes a blessing. And before you take your next breath, he goes, I got another blessing. And before you take your next one, he goes, I got another one. And I got another one. Here goes another blessing. Matter of fact, I'm going to keep them coming because your life is nothing more than an unending flow of one blessing after another blessing, after another blessing, after another blessing. God has a blessing factory in heaven and he never runs out of blessing. It's never in short supply. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, Paul says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. One blessing after another, and every blessing flows out of the fullness of his grace, the fullness of of his grace. Romans 5 chapter 1, chapter 5 verse 1, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we now have access to the grace in which we now stand. You don't know it, but you're standing in grace right now. You don't have to find grace. The point of this message is not go find some grace and get into it. I'm saying that if you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you're already standing in grace. You're swimming in an ocean of grace. I'm I'm telling you that you are inhaling and exhaling the grace of God at every moment because it's only by grace that you're still breathing. Even the gift of breath is a gift of his grace. You're still alive. And for some of you, that's the sign of God's favor because what you've been through, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be alive. It should have taken you out, but grace. But if you ever do find yourself outside of the realm of grace, if you ever do walk into a room and discern by the spirit of God that there's absolutely no grace in that room. If you ever walk into a room and go, this room is devoid of grace. Then you have an excuse not to give thanks. But until you come into that room, you got a reason to give thanks. Until you allow the grace of God to cover the memory of your sin. See, the thing we need to remember is that lack of thanksgiving comes from a failure to identify and acknowledge the grace of God. Lack of thanksgiving comes from a failure to identify and acknowledge the grace of God. Whenever I'm unthankful, it's because I simply have not identified and acknowledged the grace of God that is all around me. Grace is all around, but we don't always identify it. And even if we identify it, we don't always acknowledge it. We don't properly identify the value. We don't properly evaluate the grace of God that is around us. And because of that, we fail to give God thanks. You know, in Romans chapter 1, it's really a scary passage of Scripture, but we all need to pay heed to it. First, he talks about the gospel in Romans 1.16, one of the most famous passages. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto the salvation of all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then in verse 18 and following, it says, the scripture says that the righteous, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and wickedness of men. The wrath of God. Wait a minute, I thought you were talking about grace, Paul. Why now are you changing channels to talk about the wrath of God? 
He says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. And then it explains why. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor were thankful. Hold on a second. They neither glorified him as God nor were thankful, but their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to become wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of man and beast. Therefore God gave them over to a depraved mind. And it goes down and down and down and down. All of the wickedness that follows starts with they neither glorified God nor were thankful. You know, one of the meditations of my heart, every time, every time I think of that verse, I stop and go, Lord, I glorify you, for, glorify you as God, and I'm thankful. I glorify you as God, and I'm thankful. That's one of my meditations. Lord, I glorify you as God, and I'm thankful. God, I glorify you as God, because I do not want any lack of thankfulness in my heart to cause my foolish heart to be darkened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in professing to be wise, I can become a fool and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for man's glory. And then God gives you over to a depraved mind. No way. God, I glorify you as God, and I'm thankful. I'm a failure of thanksgiving is the fountainhead of all wickedness. At another place, the psalmist said, Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who live in the light of your presence. That is, when I learn to glorify him and be thankful, then I'm going to live in the light of his presence. Instead of my foolish heart being darkened, my wise heart will be enlightened. All because I learned to identify his grace and thank him for it. And when you allow the grace of God to cover the memory of your own sin, when you see God's grace as the foundation for enduring hardship, then you will begin to recognize the grace of God in the lives of others. See, Paul was able to look at the Corinthian church and go, there's disorder here, there's sexual sin here, there's division here, there's contentions here, but there ain't no Christian killing here. What I did is worse than what they're doing. And if the grace of God pulled me out of what I'm doing, the grace of God is going to pull them out of what they're doing. And so he's able to thank God every time he thinks of them. But God, I thank you for your grace. Because as bad as that church is, it could be a lot worse if your grace hadn't measured it. If your grace hadn't drawn some lines. If your grace hadn't put a line around their foolishness and says it stops right here. My God, I don't know where they would be. But God, I thank you for your grace that even in that place. And listen, you got to get this. Because many of us are going through stuff with our families right now. Many of us are going through hardships with our families right now. And many of us have family members that are doing things that are hurting themselves and hurting us and hurting the other members of our family. And when you see a family member do that, when you see a loved one do something that's hurtful, that's destructive to themselves and to the family, you can begin to feel powerless because you just want to run and grab them and shake them and say, stop it. You just want to smack them with a pillowcase full of Skittles. Make them taste the rainbow. But what you find is that does not lead to any sense of empowerment for you or for them. Because that frustration causes you to shut your eyes to the grace of God. 
that if I start with the identification of grace, even though this is what they're doing, God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for the grace. That is, if I cannot begin by identifying the grace of God that is already at work in that situation, I have no foundation for hearing anything else he's going to say. And so Paul knew that if he was going to minister effectively to this church, he had to start with a recognition of God's grace on their behalf. As we're approaching the Thanksgiving season, we would do well to reconnect with the grace of God so that our hearts might truly overflow with Thanksgiving. Because, you know, Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving season tends to be about turkey and not actually about Thanksgiving. And the only Thanksgiving that happens is right before we eat the turkey. And the Thanksgiving part is the part that gets on our nerves the most. And I told you a few weeks ago how my father loves to have words. You know, with all the food sitting on the table, he's got to have words over every member of the family. And then he's got to pray over every member of the family. And then we got to sing a hymn. (laughs) Meanwhile, the food's getting cold. And I would get all upset and so irritated. Not all upset because, you know, I'm respectful. I love and I honor my father. But sometimes I'm smiling on the outside. But inside I'm thinking, let's get on with this. (laughs) Look, I'm eyeing that turkey over there. And it's interesting that on Thanksgiving Day, the giving of thanks is the most irritating part. But when we learn how to live lives that are characterized by thanksgiving, then actually the holiday of thanksgiving becomes superfluous. You know, we started this church in January of 2004. In the first few years, we did this thing called March Missions Madness. And March Missions Madness was our, our missions focus month. You know, we focused on missions. The whole month of March, we focused on missions. And by the fourth year, we said, let's throw out March Missions Madness. You know why? Because it was overkill. The whole life of the church was focused on missions. Yeah. I mean, missions was, we did, at that year, fourth year, I think we did 11 mission trips. Fourth or fifth year, we did like 11 missions. We were doing missions like every month. I mean, we were putting people through School of World Missions. We were raising money for missions all year long. Why did we need a missions emphasis month? It was overkill. You know what? God wants us to get to the place where we don't even need to celebrate Thanksgiving because our lives are full of Thanksgiving. We don't need a holiday for it. It's a lifestyle. I don't need a turkey to be thankful. Just a honey ham will do. So you say, how do I reconnect with the grace of God? I'm going to tell you how to reconnect with the grace of God. Remember, it's not about disciplining yourself to give thanks. It's about disciplining yourself to identify and acknowledge the grace of God. And if you truly identify and acknowledge the grace of God, thanksgiving will naturally ensue. But how do I identify and acknowledge the grace of God? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that grace is the opposite of entitlement. Hear this. If you aren't thankful, you must think you deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. If you know you didn't deserve it, your natural response is to be thankful. Yeah. There is, and hear me on this, there is a very prominent teaching in the body of Christ that you are worthy. Mm-hmm. I even hear people say, you were worthy for Christ to die for you. Let me tell you something. None of us were worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ. We didn't deserve that. It was grace, not our worthiness. It wasn't any goodness of ours. If it was because we were worthy, then it's not grace. He owed it to us. 
few months ago, I did a conference. My wife and I did a conference down in Southern California, and I took some hard copies of my book. And I was selling them. And one guy walked up to me and he said, you know, I love your book so much, I want to buy five extra copies. And I want you to just give them out to anybody here at this conference you want to give them to. I said, great. And so I walked around and I had these five books. I'm like, here you go, you can have this. What, what? Yeah, somebody bought extra ones, you can have it. And I gave it to four people. The fifth one, I had one left and I saw this, this guy and he was sitting at the table by himself in, in the cafeteria, we were at lunchtime. And uh, he was kind of um, socially awkward and a little different different loving but different and so I went and sat down next to him and I said here I want to give this copy of this book to you you can have this he said what and he reached for his wallet I said no no you don't have to pay for it he said what, what, what's going on I said somebody paid for five extra copies and told me to give them out to anybody I want and so I want to give this one to you so there you go it's yours and he looked at me and he said you chose me and then he put his head in his hands. He put his face in his hands and started bawling. <laughs> I mean, bawling, crying. I mean, weeping. And my heart was so touched. I went, wow. I mean, this guy's really thankful. But wait, it gets better. <laughs> then he starts pounding the table and screaming, why? Why? Why me, Jesus? At the top of his lungs. And he went back to weeping. And then he looked up at me and said, tears streaming down his face, I'm going to read every word of this book. I'm going to memorize this book from start to finish. The next time you see me, I'm going to quote this book to you. I'm going to memorize this whole book. And he was so thankful. And you know what dawned on me? That's how we should experience receiving the gift of salvation. But most of us receive the gift of salvation as if we're doing Jesus a favor. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Jesus is lonely. Won't you let him in this holiday season? Don't let him sleep on the street tonight. Let him into your heart. All right, I'll take in Jesus. Kind of like we got a family coming in from out of town. Anybody want to take this family in? They're going to be in for a few days. Anybody want to open up their home? And nobody lifts their hand. That's what it's like when we ask. Anybody want to receive Jesus? People are thinking, maybe next week. I'm not ready. As if I'm doing Jesus a favor by letting him in. Well, why don't you convince me? We don't understand what salvation really is. And after we receive it, we treat it as a thing of contempt. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm saved. Think of this. If I stood up here before you and held up a set of keys, these are the keys to a brand new Maserati that was donated to the church. And it's parked in the parking lot. It's fully gassed up. Your maintenance is paid for the first five years. Insurance is paid and gas is paid. Now bow your head and close your eyes. By a show of hands, who wants this Maserati? No one looking around. Just bow your heads. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Because I know it's embarrassing for people to see you publicly say that you want a new Maserati. So bow your head and close your eyes. Nobody's looking around. We're not trying to put you on the spot by asking you to publicly receive this Maserati. Because I know it's a shameful thing to let everyone else in the room know that you want a new Maserati. It's such a shameful gift to receive. So everyone bow your head. Nobody peeking. Nobody looking around. And just with a show of hands, 
If you can just squeak your hand up and say, I want that new Maserati. And if half the people in the room are thinking, not today. Maybe next week. Well, who said the Maserati is going to be available next week? Who said you're going to be alive next week? Who, who promised you your next breath? Who said you're going to be alive tomorrow? Do you know that when God holds out the gift of salvation, it is so much more valuable than a new Maserati? A Maserati, a Maserati is like a hill of dung compared to the gift of salvation. I'm talking about the filthiest rags you could ever wear. You might as well offer somebody that if you compare anything to the gift of salvation. But yet we hold it in contempt. We don't know how powerful of a thing it is. Anybody want to get saved? Do you want to receive eternal life through Jesus Christ? You want to get forgiven of your sins? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. What if somebody came up and said, I'll take the Maserati. And they took it. And they got in the car and drove off. And you say, I saw you receive that Maserati last week. And you didn't really look thankful. And you go, Psh, I deserve this car. Well, why do you deserve that car? Because I'm a good person. Shoot. I take care of my kids. I work hard. I deserve this Maserati. But you didn't deserve it from him. You might deserve for your kids to honor if you, if you take care of your kids, but you don't deserve nothing from God. You might deserve your boss to give you a decent wage, but you don't deserve a new Maserati. Let me tell you something. There's not a person in this room who deserves eternal life. And the fact that we stop being thankful for it means that we think we deserve it. We act like we got what we deserved. We should respond like that young man. Me? Me? You saved me? You what? Wait a minute. You chose me? Why? Why? You know what? See, that was Paul's attitude. You saved me? The chief of all sinners, the one who was persecuting your church, you chose me. I'm going to serve you with all of my heart. I'm going to serve you with all of my strength. I don't care if they beat me and stone me for dead. I'm going to get up and keep on serving you. I don't care if I spend a night and a day in the deep on more than one occasion. I'm going to swim out of those waters and keep on serving you. I don't care if I get bit by vipers. I'm going to keep on serving you. I don't care what hardship, what trial, what tribulation I got to walk through. I'm going to serve you. Why? You chose me? Why? 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 Are you, you, hear what's, you see what Thanksgiving really is? You see what Thanksgiving really is? It's not a reminder to say, oh, thanks. It's a lifestyle of gratitude that says, I don't deserve what I got, but you gave it to me anyway. And it's grace. Out of the fullness of your grace, I've received one blessing after another. Thank you, God. If you deserved it, then when you get it, you got your wages. But God only, Paul only talked about wages in one place. In Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death. 
Can I say that nobody, God has no employees. Satan's got a lot of employees and he is faithful to pay wages. One thing we can say about Satan is no wages will be crying out against him on the day of judgment. But let me tell you something. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we have been given the gift of eternal life. And even if everything is going wrong in my life, I've been given the gift of eternal life. Even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will accept me. I've been given the gift of eternal life. Even if there's no cattle in the stalls and no sheep in the pen, even if there's no fruit on the tree, yet I will rejoice in God, my Savior, because I've got the gift of eternal life. I've been saved. I've been sanctified. I have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You only need to know one thing to really experience thanksgiving. That you've been saved. And maybe you're here today and you're not saved. Maybe you're here today and you have not opened up your heart to receive Jesus. And I hate even using that word. You need to open your heart to receive Jesus as if you have the power to lock him out. It's like, open up your heart to receive this new Maserati. No, you better pray I choose you. You better hope he hasn't ran out. The good news is that he hasn't ran out. But that doesn't mean that the product has lost its value. The market is flooded, but yet the value has not changed. You don't understand the economics of heaven. That God can flood the market with something free, but yet it retains an eternal value. Mm. Oh, I feel an anointing to preach this morning. I'm telling you something. We don't often enough stop to think about the mystery of salvation. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Our thanksgiving should have just as much longevity as the gift of eternal life. Just as the gift is eternal, our thanksgiving should be eternal. But for most of us, our thanksgiving does not outlast the turkey. That when there's nothing left but a carcass of a turkey, our thanksgiving is nothing but a carcass. Maybe thrown in the freezer that we might make a soup with later in the year. But learning to live the thankful life. Always giving thanks to God the Father. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of his grace. It's time for us to refocus on the cross. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. And I know you're going through a struggle and all you can see is what's going wrong in your life. But God wants to lift you up above that struggle and see that no matter what goes wrong, something has gone eternally right. And it's called eternal life. 
Sometimes we get caught in the eye of the storm and all we can see is the storm swirling around us. But God wants to pull us out of the storm and cause us to see that even when everything's being shaken, there's something that cannot be shaken that remains. And it is an unshakable kingdom. And since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The gift of salvation. That's why every angel in heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Because heaven understands the value of the gift of salvation. And heaven is longing for earth to understand the value of the gift of salvation. Heaven is longing for a new valuation. A new appraisal. A new appraisal. I talked to someone who had their house appraised. And they were shocked at how low the value was given to it by the appraiser. And that's how heaven feels when it sees how we appraise the gift of salvation as a small thing, as a trivial thing, as a trite thing that we so soon get over. Why? Me? You chose me? God, give us that heart. You chose me? God, we glorify you as God, and we're thankful. And Father, today, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would overcome the unthankfulness of our hearts. In the places where we have failed to glorify you as God and be thankful, the places where our foolish hearts have been darkened, we're professing to become wise, we've become fools. Why? Because we forgot how to give thanks. Oh, my God. Alas, and did my Savior die, and did my sovereign bleed, would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as me? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith, I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. Jesus is calling you today. There's somebody here. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but he's reaching for you today. He's reaching for you today. And don't you dare sit there in your heart and say, well, convince me. It's you that need him, not the other way around. Let me tell you something. I'm not asking you to do God a favor by receiving his grace. I'm asking you to do yourself a favor. I'm asking you to get over your pride and your haughtiness of heart that says, well, I don't know if I want that. A Maserati, I don't know if I want a Maserati. The parts are too expensive. Well, he'll pay for the parts. Well, I don't know. What am I going to have to give up if I get a new Maserati? Then I'm going to have to get Maserati friends and get a Maserati job and Maserati clothes. I'm not ready for it. Get over yourself today. God is offering you something that you're not worthy of. Offering something that you don't deserve. And he's not begging you as though he needs it. But he is imploring you because he loves you so much. And he's desperate for you to see how much you need it. You're here today and you say, I'm ready. And no, I'm not asking anybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. I want to know who who has appraised the gift of salvation enough to say, I want that. I don't care who sees it. I want it. I wouldn't be ashamed of the gift of salvation anymore that I'd be ashamed of a new Maserati. 
I want that. If that's you, lift your hand right now. In the presence of all of these witnesses, say, that's me. I'm ready to get that gift. You're here today. You've been fighting with God. You've been wrestling with him in your heart. But like Paul, he's arresting your heart. And it's time to surrender to him. You're ready to do it? Lift your hand. Father, I thank you that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is resting heavily on this house today. That you're shifting every heart. You're shifting every mind. Lord, for those of us believers who are here today, you're calling us back to the place of true thanksgiving. It starts with the identification of grace. For by grace we have been saved. Through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God forbid that I should ever boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. Teach us how to live that life of having been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you for the grace of God that cries out to us. As we have identified your grace, many I just see... Tears and eyes as that revelation of grace is rekindling in hearts. That revelation of grace, grace-centric perspective. Everywhere you go, you see grace from now on. Open our eyes, God, that we see grace everywhere and that we would be constantly thankful. Constantly thankful, constantly thankful because of your grace. Hallelujah. Some of you just need to begin to thank him right now, right where you're seated. In your own voice, in your own words. Whether loudly or quietly, just respond to God right now. Give him thanks. Hallelujah. 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 Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yeah. You know what? Stand up on your feet and just begin to thank him with a loud voice. Just stand up on your feet and begin to thank the Lord. Come on, just begin to respond right now. We give you praise, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Come on, I'm talking about bold, braggadocious, with a loud voice. Come on. Yeah. Like that man at the table. Why? Oh Lord, we give you praise, oh Lord, giving you all. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. God, we glorify you as God, and we are thankful. I glorify you as God, and I'm thankful. Don't let our foolish hearts be darkened any further, God but that we would learn to glorify you as God and be thankful. We glorify you as God and we are thankful. We glorify you as God and we are thankful. God, just put that meditation in our hearts. We glorify you as God and we are thankful. Come on, just begin to say it.
Jesus, yes, yes, yes. Mm. Mm. Yes, Lord. Father, I pray that this would increase through the week. That there would be a deepening revelation of your grace that would be imparted to us. Let this word be like a time-release capsule. Let it gain more and more momentum as each day goes by. That the revelation would be released in greater and greater measure. The revelation of your grace. That our hearts would overflow with thanksgiving. To the glory of God, we love you today because you first loved us. Thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Mm-hmm.